The last man on Earth lives in a fortress. Discovered Shaq. How does that grab you, Caesar? The last man on Earth always carries an automatic weapon. The last man on Earth is hunting because the last man on Earth is not alone. Charlton Heston, Rosalind Cash. New York City, 50 years from today. Nothing runs, nothing works. They gave me a quarter of a kilo. But people are the same. And people will do anything to get what they need. What they need most is Soylent Green. Hey everybody, it's 70 movies we saw in the 70s, The Return. It's been a long time. You know what I see other podcasts do a lot? What? They they start calling their podcasts, they start dividing (coughs) their podcasts into seasons. And they're like, oh, this is the last episode of the season, which means they're going to take like a two month break. Right. So if I had only thought on our Westworld show to say, this is our season ender. And I don't know what season that would have been. Maybe season How long two? ago was that? That's a great question. Yeah. But that was from 1973, that movie. And this movie is from 1973. So. And they're mm. both, could you say, dystopian science fiction films? Uh, you know, everything's dystopian. Would you say we are now currently living in a dystopian universe? If we're not, it's, it's goddamn close. Yeah. It was very, very, very close. According um, to SoundCloud, um, it's been four months since Westworld. I thought the SoundCloud was going to talk about whether or not we were in a dystopian reality. Four months, oh, okay. Well, that's It seems like longer than four months, but... It seems like so longer than four months. Yeah. Well, really? I was thinking two months. Okay. But no, that makes sense. Listen... We've got lives. You know, the world, as they say, is opening back up. This dystopian universe is now open for business. Right. And so we don't have the kind of luxury we had back uh, last year when we were sitting at home all the time. Right. You've been been on the road consistently. You didn't give a shit. You were like, fuck open for business. I'm out. (laughs) I'm out on the goddamn road. You know, it just didn't seem like that. It seemed like everyone else was ready to come back out. You know, like run into somebody and they're like, what, you're touring? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do not. Right. Yeah. Now look at you. Now look at me. I'm a broken shell of a man. <laughs> Was it worth it? Uh, I don't know. So, um, the, the Scott just finished that Scott Lucas talking over there. I'm Ben Reiser. You know, by now you probably know who we are. Um, but Scott just came back from the final leg 
of many legs of this tour. He was on with his band Local H for their album Lifers. This was the Lifers re-re-re-re tour? Was it four Right, this was the last leg of the Lifers tour, which the record came out two years ago. Um, And usually, you know, your, your record comes out, you go out for a couple of months and you promote that record and then you do other things, like you open up for other bands or, you know, you explore tertiary markets or, you know, or you start working on another record. Right. So this took two years, but just trying to finish that first, like, hey, everybody, here's the record. And so by the time we were finished with it, the sucker was two years old and <laughs> nobody right. who I, I barely even care myself. So, um, yeah. well, or the audience knew the album better than you did by the end of the tour. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was, in, that was what we thought might be an interesting byproduct of it, but it wasn't interesting enough to, <laughs> I don't know. We're nothing if not tenacious and, uh, it's over. I, I feel a sense of accomplishment, but, uh, it, it does seem silly. No, when you think back on it. Oh, I don't know. Don't beat yourself. From the hindsight of four days, it (laughs) seems silly. (laughs) So, but um, for this final leg of your tour, you chose um, to borrow some, what do they call it? Iconography? Well, I don't know. That's probably too fancy of a word. You stole the the poster from uh, Soylent Green. Right. Because it takes place in 2022. When did you discover that? Is that something you've known for years? It popped up somewhere and I was like, oh, it's 2022. And, you know, so I, I, uh, I just put it up because at the beginning of the year, because it was 2022. And then our friend, uh, John Oaks, he saw it and he changed it to what you see the local age, you know, certainly green is now that we were kind of like used as our ad mat and poster and we made a shirt. Um, so I had no intention of going that far and then John Oaks did something and it was like, okay, well, we've got to do this. Then I guess it's shortly after that, when you were on, when you were on tour with this poster and t-shirt, I thought, oh, the poster tour, we should actually do Soylent Green. That is a movie that I saw in the seventies. Um, I was also thinking that at the rate we're going, at some point we're going to change the name of this podcast to 70s movies we saw in our 70s. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, but Soylent Green um, uh, has always been a matched pair, and we talked about this or texted about it the other day with uh, another Charlton Heston 70s dystopian um, apocalyptic uh, science fiction movie the Omega man. Right. Um, and honestly, it's really a trilogy yes. or even a, a four. Well, Planet of the Apes came out in 68, so it doesn't really count, but beneath the Planet of the Apes is 70. And that's about as dystopian and apocalyptic as it gets. And right. In fact, shares, shares, a, uh, shares some stuff with, uh, Omega man, I think. Um, but yeah, but so, but but in any case, at the very least, Omega Man and Soylent Green were always tied together in my head ever since I saw them both. I, I have distinct memories of watching both of them at my grandparents' apartment in Sheepshead Bay, where I saw a lot of stuff. I would sometimes spend the night there, 
uh, and uh, they had this nice black and white TV in their living room of their apartment, and my grandfather was into watching like uh, Barnaby Jones and Hawaii Five-0 and other shit like that, but also uh, the occasional movie, either the 430 movie right. uh, or, or in prime time. And um, I totally saw Omega Man more than once that way and Soylent Green. Yeah. Uh, in fact, yeah, between, between these movies and the Planet Apes, Planet of the Apes movies, like Charlton Heston was my guy. Like it's yeah. kind of embarrassing to admit how much I loved him, you know. And it was because of those three movies that you talk about, and Beneath too. When he shows up at the end of Beneath, it was like, oh, this is awesome, you know. It, it is. He, I, I think Beneath is an underrated movie. I think it's yeah. The, the stuff with Heston and the end of that movie. I mean, <laughs> you know, it fucking Heston. Heston in the 1970s equaled the end of the world. Like, right. he, he literally is like so. So so Omega Man is based on a, a Richard Matheson novel called The Last Man on Earth, which was made into a Vincent Price movie in the 60s, I think. I thought it was called uh, I Am Legend. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, I Am Legend. But the Vincent Price movie was called Last Man on Earth. Right. Last Man on Earth. And I've never made it through that Vincent Price movie. I've tried, but I had seen the Omega Man before knowing that there was this Vincent Price version. And every time I've tried to watch it, it just bored me to tears. Yeah. Uh, like within the first 10 minutes, and I'm just like, yeah, fuck this. Um, but I'm trying to think if I ever have seen Omega Man or Soylent Green in a movie theater. Like eventually I must have seen them in color and probably have them uh, had them both on VHS, like duped copies from. I don't think I have. And you know, I watched them yesterday as a double feature, and it's just like, wow, this is a no-brainer double feature. How has this never happened? You know, I'm sure it has, and I intend to make it happen sometime Good. before the end of the year over at UW Cinematheque. Jim yeah. Healy hasn't hasn't <laughs> been exposed to this thought yet, but <laughs> but uh, it's got to be right. It's crazy. Yeah. It has to happen. But these I were need big, to see these movies on the big screen. These were yeah. big afternoon ABC. Mm. Here it was the 3.30 movie. Right. Big favorites on that. And, you know, I mean, they're almost an hour and a half, so they didn't have to do the usual amount of editing that they usually have to do with their movies. No, and I'm kind of, I was kind of wondering, watching Omega Man yesterday, uh, what they did about... Uh, Dude's jacket. I like to call him. I, I forget the actor's name. I'll, I'll look it up when we're talking about it in depth. But he, he, he's the guy who rescues Charlton Heston and Omega right. Man. And he's like, he kind of reminds me of like Michael J. Pollard. Mm. As a, if Michael J. Pollard was playing Billy Jack in some like Billy Jack remake. Yeah, uh, he's a little less insane and creepy than Michael J. Pollard, but he's got that same. But he's got this jacket where the whole back of it is like a painted middle finger. Uh, and I'm thinking, isn't that what that. the symbol is on his jacket? Oh, I didn't even notice screen, it. Your screen isn't big enough, but maybe nobody, maybe I'm wrong about what that is, but I'm pretty sure that's what that is. But yeah, I don't, I don't think they cut too much out of either one of these movies. Um, no, I remember the, the violence, like the really red blood. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. Whoa. It's got that great seventies, like red paint blood. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I the, you know, it must be because this is what I grew up with. Although, again, I don't remember seeing these in color for quite some time. But this kind of violence, this way of portraying what it looks like when somebody gets shot, uh, you know, this kind of like squib and like the the, the, the holes that open up in, in clothing, 
Like that's my violence. Give me, give me that all day. That's the kind of movie violence that. It, yeah, that the I, guns, I the love. machine guns sounded great. It's, it's good stuff. All, right, they all had these kind of like Uzis or yeah. other sort of like very portable machine guns, uh, and I think that that's what they're. That's the same kind of weapons they're using in Beneath the Planet of the Apes at the end. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. good. I don't feel weird about my love for Charlton Heston. I do feel bad about what happened to him towards the mm-hmm. end of his life and career and uh, his descent into uh, right-wing uh, gun-toting craziness. And madness. They went hand-in-hand. Hand. By the end yeah. of it, you know, he didn't know who he was anymore. And, you know, I mean, it, it sounds like a cautionary tale somebody made up. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, at this time, he was kind of a, you know, he, he was the opposite. He was on the other end of the spectrum. You know, he was a, a big advocate for civil rights. And when you watch him in this movie, these movies, like, especially with the, the scarf and Sterling Green, and he's sort of like this cool hep cat, you know, and and in, uh, and in Omega Man, he's sitting there watching Woodstock. And I'm like, come on, man. Yeah. Charlie yeah, yeah. is not watching Woodstock. Even if it were the last movie on Earth, he's not watching Woodstock. Well, although, here's the thing. You know, in all these movies, he's this cynical, embittered... And this goes for Planet of the Apes and Beneath as well. He's like the, he's like the last cynical guy on Earth. He's like got a sardonic wit and everything is... He's pissy about everything. And in fact, Omega Man, he's just filled with these sort of one-liners... Uh, you know, that sort of precede decades worth of action movie stars delivering these stupid one-liners throughout the, you know, it's like, where will, where would Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis be without Charlton Heston's dialogue in Omega Man, where he just spends most of the movie just sort of like making quips to himself about, you know, all these, all these things he's encountering, these dead bodies and... And Woodstock, you know, he, he sees, he watches Woodstock. He's like, they don't make movies like that anymore. <laughs> but isn't it interesting that in, in, in Omega Man, he's almost like they use him as sort of like a, a, a symbol of a bygone era. You know, it's like, you're the evil one. You've got to go. And in Soylent Green, which came out two years later, he's kind of the young guy, you know, it's like, hey man, I don't even remember what. I've never even seen beef stew. Now, here's my problem. Okay, so he's, uh, you know, my age when he's in that movie. He was born in 23. That movie comes out in 73. So, like now, he'd be about my age. It'd be be like me being him. I remember, I would remember beef stew. I would remember an apple and an orange, right? I mean, how quickly did things turn? I mean, he would have been a kid in the 70s when that movie came out. It couldn't have turned that quickly. How could he not? Is he supposed to be playing a 20-year-old? I, you know, I, maybe I'm holding this to a high standard, but it's just. No, no, no. And I hold it. I try to hold it to a similarly high standard and it fails on an even more sort of basic like plot level of like character motivation and like character arc. Like, what really annoys me about Soylent Green is that um, he is this hardened, cynical, corrupt cop. 
throughout most of the movie. But by yeah. the end of the movie, he's reverted back into a sort of a much more naive and um, non-cynical uh, uh, state of mind where he find where when he discovers the secret of Soylent Green, he's he's mortified. He can't believe you know this needs to. You know, that cracks me up even in the movie because I'm like, dude, you've been, <laughs> you know, you've been wandering through this world all movie. Yeah. Like, why is this a surprise to you? Like, there are right. people living on stairs. <laughs> it's not, it's not the big surprise that the movie is. It's not a big leap. It yeah. It also, and this is really depressing to me, I feel like in 2022, the news that they were making food from dead people, I don't even think that would be like front page headline at this point. Like, <laughs> And, and, you know, and half the country would be like, you're goddamn right we're making food out of people. Yeah. I mean, you know, the they, the overpopulation thing, they, they didn't quite get that right. They, they maybe overshot the mark. But it seems to me on almost every other thing, it's it's not that far off. It's pretty right on. And what, how do we have a product called Soylent? How is that? How is that okay? Well, you know, the guy who invented it, Named it after this movie. Okay. And why? Why would you do that? <laughs> I don't know. He's just, I think he thought it would be like, it would catch people's attention. Man, um, our, our inventors are, they're freaks. What I never knew until today, doing a little research, was that Soylent, uh, when, I forget who invented it. For the uh, Harry Harrison wrote this book called right. uh, Make Room, Make, make room, room, Make Room. And he does talk about soylent steaks and it's a combination of soybeans and lentils so it's soy lent which i never put together before i mean either but how many things do they make with soybeans these right. days it's yeah. pretty crazy yeah yeah you know and and i know harry harrison was a little bummed out about the movie as most writers are about the movies but soylent green is a much better name than make room make room yeah and i like that they they didn't keep make room make room because they thought people would worry that it was the people would think it was a sequel to make room for daddy <laughs> so anyway we're gonna talk about soylent green and omega man and i don't know whether we're gonna count these as two of se i guess we should right i don't know i mean i know this was my idea but are, are we shorting soylent green <laughs> No, I mean, okay. I, well, I don't think so. But do you want to talk about you want to, you want to do Soylent Green first, like chronologically? Omega Man. Omega Man is first. So, yeah. but Planet of the Apes is first. So is, is that when yeah, 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 yeah. changes? I mean, you know, I keep forgetting that you know, Charlton Heston won an Oscar for Ben Hur, so he had his pick of whatever he wanted to do. So at what point did he become, you know? Low rent isn't the word for it, but, you know, it just kind of, does it feel like he's slumming in these movies? Because it didn't feel like that to me as a kid, but when I look at it as an adult, I'm like, oh man, he might have been kind of slumming, because then it was Airplane and all the disaster movies. and Yeah, Airport 75. Okay. He wasn't in an airplane. That's, I, uh, a, whole, that's a whole other genre. Uh, it is? Yes. I mean... Yeah, it, well, Airport... The airport movies are okay. theoretically <laughs> like your disaster movies. They're disaster movies, but but airplane is a comedy. 
Uh, okay, that's what I meant. Airport. Obviously, yeah. obviously, I didn't think Charlton Heston <laughs> was in airplane. No. I meant no, airport. But, I'm sorry. No, but you're right. But and his big disaster movie, which we have talked about on this show, though not with you, is Earthquake from '74, mm. which I think yeah. is the best of the disaster movies and an awesome. I would yes, I'm sure there's people who would say he was slumming it in the '70s. To me, it's a brilliant tactical maneuver from the epics like Ben-Hur and Ten Commandments that they weren't going to make anymore right. uh, into this whole other genre uh, that I, it must have been Planet of the Apes that was a success. You know, yeah. Planet of the Apes had had enough of a legit um, crew behind it. Uh, Rod Serling uh, writing the screenplay and um, I mean, I don't, I'm not exactly, sh- I can't remember how Heston got involved with Planet of the Apes, but once he was in Planet of the Apes, he must have seen this whole new door open to him, or, or other filmmakers did, and were like, hey, right. we can use Heston in this way. Yeah. Um, and Heston is into being sort of counterculture enough that he will jump in and do these these science, these dystopian sci-fi movies. And, yeah. And I mean, you go I, from I, Rod Serling on Planet of the Apes to Richard Matheson. It's kind of, it, it's a, it's a sideways step, right? Yeah, I, and I think it's great. But then I also wonder, like you know, we grew up as kids hearing these names, Rod Serling and Richard Matheson, like they were, you know, gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know at the time, especially Richard Matheson. I don't know, you know, uh, I Am Legend is his first novel, and it wasn't a particularly well-reviewed novel. Um, so I'm not sure when Richard Matheson became, but he'd written all those Twilight Zone episodes. Yes, right. So he and Rod Serling were kind of swimming in the same water. No, they were absolutely swimming in the same water. I'm just wondering what what they were considered the artistically and, and culturally. I'm saying how were they viewed? Were were they viewed as like part of the slum? That Heston jumped into, or were they thought of in a more prestigious way, in a more legit? I, mean, I don't way. think. I don't think people thought of Richard Matheson as like. I mean, he wasn't Ray Bradbury, but I, I don't think he was, you know, like a pulp writer or anything like that. Right. No, he wasn't. But even Ray Bradbury, I think you're right. I think Ray Bradbury is probably as prestigious a name as you get when it comes to like science fiction and fantasy. Right. Um. And then Richard Matheson was more like a Harlan Ellison, guys who were like writing for TV and also writing novels. But I don't know that they were considered. I, I still don't know. I still don't know that Richard Matheson is ever considered like literature in the way that Ray Bradbury is like considered like an actual. Like he writes literature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Whereas Harlan Ellison is writing like The Trouble scripts, with Tribbles. TV scripts. Yeah. TV scripts. Um, and it, and intra and you know and then there is a lot of overlap with TV and and these movies. Um, uh, Boris Segal, who directed um, the Omega Man, uh, was mostly a TV director and also the father of Katie Segal of Married with Children fame. Did you know oh, that? I didn't know that. So he he hadn't done other movies. Or some he might have done like one done. other movie, but but when you look him up now in Wikipedia, he's called a television director okay because you know there's a real uh 
black exploitation thing going on with Omega Man. So it, there really is, and it's interesting in that it really precedes the official start of black exploitation. In in a lot of ways, it's a role model for black exploitation. And I think that's what's so great about both of these movies, and especially the Omega Man, is how kind of funky they are and how sort of like urban and black forward they are. Yeah. Um, there's, and it's all sort of, I know it was a big deal, like the, the, the kiss that he shares with Rosalind Cash is like one of the first interracial kisses ever in American cinema. That was the first one I saw. Yeah, but it's all, but despite that sort of groundbreakingness of it, it all feels pretty natural and sort of casual and like not like they're making a huge point out of it. Right. I mean, there's a couple of jokes in Omega Man. There's a thing where where Michael J. Pollard Jr. says something about the kids are spooked, and Rosalind Cass says, "Hey, watch it!" Like you know, yeah. he's using the word "spook" in the wrong right. way. Right. Um, uh, and then there's something, there's something where uh, uh, two of the creepy albino-eyed family members are talking, and the one and the black guy says something about that he's living in honky heaven, right. living up in honky paradise in that apartment. Uh, but for the most part, it just feels like, yeah, it, the casting almost feels colorblind sometimes, and and in Soylent Green, uh, the relationship that. That Charlton Heston's character has with his boss, uh, Brock Peters, um, feels feels less forced than a million other sort of cop movies that came afterwards, where there's like a black right. captain who's like giving shit to like Clint Eastwood or you right. know Mel Gibson or whatever. Yeah. Um, I like that. Th- I like their relationship. They seem friendlier than and and they and 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 again, there is no big deal made out of the fact that 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 his boss is black and. Um, I mean, it's uh, just you, you like, said it to me. Uh, th- you said it to me on an early episode about um, how uh, the in the seventies it seemed like we sort of took the decade off from like having like a race war like we were so tired of it after the 60s that people sort of like chilled out and like just let it happen and these movies definitely feel like they're good examples of that point well they seem like you know there's an there was a openness and an honesty and a like look you know we are we're gonna kill each other if we don't get in this together and you watch stuff like this and you watch blazing saddles they're talking about it and and in uh Taking Pelham one two three, you know, it's just so out in the open that it doesn't even feel like racism anymore, you know. And now everything's just so cooped up, and no, everyone's afraid to talk about it. That it seems more dangerous, and it is underground. And now we see what happens, you know. Yeah. When it was out in the open, the like, splashed across screens in movie theaters, it just seemed healthier, and and that's what it, these movies feel like too, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I really, I, I didn't see anything. I didn't look too hard, but I'm surprised that Omega Man doesn't get more credit for sort of like being the prototype for a bunch of, you know, black exploitation tropes. Like Rosalind Cash's, her whole outfit is like, hey, yeah, you know, Pam Greer must have seen this, and like that's Cleopatra Jones and all that shit. I can't believe this is before, but it is. It's seventy one. It is. Yeah. yeah, I never even thought of that. Hey, did you realize that the guy? who is the the black albino-eyed um, family guy 
Zachary, no. brother Zachary, who who is it? Goes who who uh, who Heston shoot you know machine guns down. Right. Uh, he is the priest. That actor is the priest in um, in Soylent Green. In Soylent Green. Oh wow, yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it's a small world that Hollywood. Sure is. Here's what blew my mind: uh, discovering that the cinematographer for Omega Man was Russell Meddy. Who's yes. like one of the most amazing cinematographers of all time. And it looks great. It looks fantastic. You know, and I think Russell Meddy shot Touch of Evil with Heston. And I wonder mm. if that's where the two of them hooked up for the first time. And I mean, that's how powerful Heston was. He he got he got Orson Welles a gig, you know? Yeah, yeah. Right. Um and and Russell Meddy also was the cinematographer for Bringing Up Baby. So when I think that the same guy shot Bringing Up Baby, which is probably my favorite comedy, um, Touch of Evil, which I tend to think of as my favorite Orson Welles movie, um, and Omega Man, it's like, mm. dude, that's a career. That's pretty good. I mean, what other movies? Because he, he seems like, you know, those are great black and white movies but this is such a great looking color movie it really I'm wondering is. what else he did in color he worked on uh maybe camera operator on uh, citizen kane yeah sure oh well he shot spartacus so that's a great color movie mm-hmm. uh the misfits great black and white uh there's a movie called lock stock and barrel you ever heard of that yes Del- a lot of TV in the 70s, apparently. A lot of, like, just followed Richard Thomas around wherever he went, from the Waltons to Rich Man, Poor Man. Oh, he shot the sequel to Willard. He shot Ben. Ooh. Ben, the two of us need look no more. Eye of the Cat. Oh, that's a good-looking movie. Uh, the Thing That Couldn't Die. Ooh. How many times have you seen that? Magnificent Obsession? Okay. Come on. He also shot one of the early Columbo episodes, Murder by the Book. Is that your favorite Columbo episode? <laughs> no, but it's not bad. <laughs> Is that the one that Spielberg directed? Yes, directed by Steven Spielberg. Wow. With Jack Cassidy as a mystery writer. Well, good stuff. Yeah. Russell Meddy. Oh, yeah. Russell Meddy. So anyway, let's talk about Omega Man. Okay. So it starts with this uh, cold opening with the car just speeding through LA. And I have to say that as many times I've seen it, and like I say, probably the most times I've seen it, we're, we're in the 70s in black and white on a four by three, you know, tube TV. Right. And so I didn't see as, uh, you couldn't see the detail, but it wasn't until I watched it this week that I was like, oh, almost every one of these shots at the beginning, you can see a car or two driving in the background. And there's a couple shots where you can see other people walking on the street. And I'm like, how did they, how did they wind up using these? Like, weren't they afraid that in a, in a, on a big screen in a theater, like it would just be obvious. I didn't even notice it. There you go. Uh, of course there's also later on, there's a bunch of stunt work. Like when Heston's supposed to be on a motorcycle, there's tons of stuff where you're like, that's not Charlton Heston. (laughs) Right, Uh, right, right. But that's more typical. Right. Uh, But it's still a great opening. And man, both of these movies, it's funny. You watch them now and you're like, oh my God, they they exaggerate the litter so much, you know, to make it seem like post-apocalyptic, like nobody's picked up the garbage for 20 years or whatever. 
But I also remember and have pictures of me in New York City in the 70s. And that's really not that far off from no. how trashy the streets were. No, it's especially now. Oh, now? See, I think yeah. that like those days are long gone. Like, no, they're not. They're back. Thanks to COVID. So the streets of L.A. are strewn with garbage. And uh, Heston's driving around in this really nice red convertible. Mm. His car craps out. And so he goes to get a new car. Right, right. And then when he gets home, the family, who are these, uh, you know, in, in Richard Matheson's novel, they're actually vampires. And I think right. in the Vincent Price movie, they're really vampires too. But in Omega Man, and I also think in the Will Smith, not that we want to talk about Will Smith. Or that say, when are you going to bring up the Will Smith one? <laughs> I know. I, I find that to be a real piece of shit, that movie. Uh, oh, big surprise but i don't think they're vampires in that either are they no they are vampires oh but they they're, are they're much they're like they're like these crazy animalistic vampires they're more like along the lines of oh Barlow right right right, right 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 yes but in, in omega man they're they're not really they're not vampires they they, no. they don't they can't stand the sunlight but that's about the extent of it they don't drink blood no. Gar- garlic doesn't mean shit to them. <laughs> albino. <laughs> you can shoot them. You don't have shit. to you don't have to stab them with a right. with a stake through the heart. And, um, I mean, how much of an influence do you think this movie had on uh on Romero? Cuz I kept thinking of that when I was watching this. I definitely think that there's that Dawn of the Dead steals some stuff from this. I think the movie that I really, that I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen this spoken of, but that really feels like this was a huge influence on in like unpredictable ways is Phantasm. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Because I think those family, the cloaks, the black cloaks all, you know, I think when Phantasm came out, people were thinking Star Wars because they, they, these guys are like, Jawas. yeah, they look like little Jawas or whatever. But I think... I'll, they're a lot more like this, and I think there's some harpsichord stuff in the score. Here's this: the score of Omega Man is fascinating to me because it seems like it's all over the fucking place. Like sometimes it's experimental, and sometimes it's got like this ornate sort of harpsichord music, which sort of prefigures like Carpenter and and uh, whatever. And then there's some of it which has these horns, which sound a lot like the theme for that. TV, the British TV show, The Prisoner. So then I mm. looked up the, the the composer of Omega Man, and sure enough, it's the fucking guy who wrote the score for The Prisoner. And I right. think it's... And then, crazily enough, the guy who did the music for Soylent Green, which doesn't remind me of Phantasm at all, but is also kind of weird and experimental, it's he did score. the music. It is a great score. He did the score for Phantasm and for Phantasm oh. too. Well, not only the, like, you know, the monsters and the last man and all that stuff, but there's a lot of stuff about, uh, uh about consumerism and, mm-hmm. you know, that, yes. that just seems like Romero was what, huh? Okay. Maybe I can develop that. No, absolutely. There's all those scenes where they're like raiding the drugstore shelves and stuff, which feels like it's right out of Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mannequins. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, you're right. In a more like larger sense of like theme and what are we satirizing here? There's that stuff. But then there's also very specific, you know, like 
locations and and um gimmicks and like stuff about like stores still being lootable right um so in this movie in, in in omega man uh we see calendars which tell us that the last time anybody flipped a page on a calendar was in march of 75 and the movie itself is taking place in 77 and it's released in 71 so this is like a this one's supposed to be a very near future like this is right. not a not a distant future in the way that um soiling green is like this right. is like hey this is going to happen tomorrow right right like there there's a big there's a big event that happens and you know what what is it we get nuked by russia or something like that well yeah no there's it's not nuclear which but i always thought it was and i finally paid attention to it this week and i'm like wait what is actually the story of this movie right. it's bio, it's a biological weapon that gets released by russia russia and china are having a war with each other and we have somehow get sucked in right and there's and some we can't we can't shoot the missiles down because it will release the stuff right but, but i think we, we do end up getting like again, there, somebody okay. says like don't shoot those missiles down because that agent is gonna spread all over the place and then they shoot the missiles down and <laughs> how does heston survive that uh, that, that, that helicopter, helicopter crash. crash. Well, There's barely. No way. Gonna, he loses as much blood in that crash as he does at the end in that water He's fountain, like, which immediately turns oh, red. Oh, I got to get to the vaccine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lucky for him, that turned out to be the, the correct vaccine. Because when he gets into the helicopter, he's just like, I don't know, let's try another vaccine. You know? Right. He, he has no reason to think that that's the magic vaccine, but he... He doesn't know sure if it's Pfizer did. or, or yeah. what. <laughs> yeah last for four months or four days yeah. um so yeah so anyway so so you're right heston uh, he gets a flat tire he goes and he buys himself uh or steals himself another car uh and when he gets home the family is waiting for him and they try to burn him up they're always trying to like set him on fire the, the family has and, and so Anthony Zerbe who I love and it's like yes, okay, any, any movie this guy Anthony Zerbe is going to be worth a watch um, I, but something I didn't I never put together until uh, now is that he is this newscaster turned right. like Fox News commentator yeah <laughs> who then becomes uh, it's pretty good the leader of the, <laughs> of the family yeah it's like the first time you see him he's doing straight news and the second time you see him like yeah. mid-war or mid-plague he's like ranting and raving and he's gonna do it live he's doing a whole Tucker Carlson thing well the uh, thing about Anthony Zerby is he never listens he was told that the ice is gonna break <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't listen. Well, in this movie, he's the one who's telling Charlton Heston that nobody listened. Like, nobody right. was paying attention. He's got the opposite role. He's the wise one. Yeah, this movie. the the other The other thing, and I know you didn't like this show, and I really struggled to get through it. But by the end of it, I was like, oh, okay, it wasn't so bad. It was like equally shitty, and then some good parts. Was that um, Station Eleven? We're a big part of that post-apocalyptic no, it's, it's not that world. I don't like it. I just haven't watched the third episode. Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, there's like 10 episodes, so you're not, yeah. you're not far yeah. along. Um, no, it, it, listen. I, I admit, after the first episode, which I thought was pretty perfect, like there's a lot of heavy slogging to go through after that. Yeah. A lot of like cringy, 
fucking David Cross is in it, and that's no good. And uh, Lori Penny, just, who I love these days. Yeah. There's too many shows. I don't have to do that anymore. You're absolutely right. There's enough shows to go around. More than enough. You yeah. can be picky. You can be choosy. You have to be. And you can't make it through all this shit. It's Why not? Many hours right, the exactly. The world has opened back up. We don't have time for this anymore. No. So Heston's living alone. And here's the other thing. It's a real battle for me to decide which movie has the most annoying and painful to look at costume design because i find heston's outfit in in uh soylent green to be almost impossible to look at that those pants he's wearing that have like the <laughs> god piece built in and like you said that fucking scarf he's wearing yeah, um, i don't know man. and that fucking shitty like two dollar baseball cap I don't really understand Soylent Green's costume design, whether they're deliberately saying, like, there's nothing left and people are just wearing shit for, like, four years in a row and it's all garbage. Or they just didn't have the money or the interest in thinking about anything other than putting everyone in khakis or Chairman Mao clothes or... When you put that alongside of something like Rollerball and you're just like, what, Hollywood, like get a sale on football helmets and every movie has got to have football helmets or something. Right. So you think like Soylent, I mean that Omega man by default is the better costumed movie, but Heston's wearing these <laughs> Seinfeld worthy puffy shirts throughout that fucking He looks thing. like Elon Musk. It's, it's <laughs> yes. like ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. You know, and some of it seems to be that he's living in some fops apartment. <laughs> and so he's wearing all this guy's clothes. Maybe, yeah, that's a good... I hadn't thought of that. That's actually really entertaining. Because <laughs> he's got this, like, dinner jacket on at some point, like a velvet... But at, at one point he says that's where he lived, and that's where he's going to stay living, you know? So he's... So it is his... It's his apartment. I it's always been so. his apartment. That's what I got later on. But I like your idea better. Well, yeah. the, I guess these are the clothes I'm wearing. Well, at first I didn't really notice the puffy sleeve nonsense that he was wearing until he's kidnapped by the family and they're gonna they're gonna crucify him well he's determined to get crucified in this movie he's gonna be christ like in some form no matter what and i guess he is in all of these movies right like by the end of each one of these post-walk movies heston's character is like you know arms outstretched Arms outstretched, whether he's whether he's detonating a nuclear bomb or right. or handing over his vial of uh, uninfected blood or whatever the fuck he's doing, he's always got his arms. He's not content with being Moses anymore. No, no, he's moving all the way up. Um, but but so so when they're gonna take him to Dodger Stadium or whatever and set him on fire, they put this like clan hat on him. Uh, yeah, uh, I think yeah. it's Dodger Stadium. But they put this big stupid hat on him and they're they're determined. Oh, so what I was going to say is that whole concept of like getting rid of anyone who has any relation to the before times. They they steal that in Station 11 and there's like a whole faction oh, of see. like younger people who are like you're the old ways. We're right. getting rid of you because you guys fucked up and we need to start fresh. Well, I feel like that's probably Matheson's original idea in the novel, which I haven't read, but I I know that idea certainly resurfaces later in the Will Smith version. Yeah, that, that is, that is, 
I, I did read a whole long summary of the Matheson novel. Yes, that it, that does come from the Matheson novel. But I don't really understand. But it gets confused here. You know, they, it's not that they downplay it. It's just like you can't tell if it's if they're just if it's part of their hysterical religious dementia or mania. You know, right? Because you don't because their condition is never clearly spelled out. Like there's all these people who died right away from the mm-hmm. plague, but then there's these people who got transformed into these creatures of the night, but are they still dying? Are they about to, like, he finds one of them who is sort of just keeled over a desk and has died. Right, he thinks that they're all going to die, right. He tells them that the only thing in their future is coffins. Right, right, good line. Another good Bruce Willis kind of tough guy line. (laughs) And then there's what they call the the tertiary ones. Tertiary. The people that were walking around and they soon will become the secondary ones who will right. all become. Yeah. And sometimes it takes them months to turn into the creatures of the night. And sometimes, like in the case of uh, Rosalind Catch, it's just immediate. Like she's right. walking through a store and then all of a sudden she's got a, Great a scene. white fright wing on. Yeah. Great scene. I'm like, what's she walking around at night for? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have to say that there's a, there's a big age gap between Heston and, and Rosalind Cash, but... I was surprised watching it this week as to actually that she's a lot older than I remembered her being. Like, I pictured that character as like a 20-year-old. But she's not. She feels like she's more like in her 30s. Right. Hmm. The things, you know, the things you think when you're a kid. It's weird. You'd think a kid would, would, would think of her as older than, older rather than younger, but. Right. Uh... So who do we get? So 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 Heston's wandering around. He takes care of the takes care of the family. Chases them out of the house. He's got this whole elaborate system of like locks and keys, and he's got uh, TV monitors and stuff. And uh, and then, like you say, he goes to watch Woodstock, which I mean, as a projectionist, you know, you realize it's kind of bullshit, right? Like uh, <laughs> like there's. Uh, like this is pre-plattered, right? Seventy eight, seventy one. But I mean, like you know, what would it? He'd have to be running up to that booth every twenty minutes and and switching yeah. reels and stuff. So absolutely, you, know, you, you can't just kick back and watch Woodstock in its entirety in nineteen seventy. No, you can't. But you know, those. Uh, we also don't want to see him take a piss. You know, I mean, these, these are the things that like we don't need to know. <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But we do get to see Country Joe and the Fish and Arlo Guthrie. So. Arlo, yeah. Yeah, Arlo, man. Oof. That's rough. Um, uh, so the other thing about Charlton Heston, and I know we got into a little thing a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about whether you say men are topless. And you're right. That's probably not what you say. But, but Heston is bare-chested in just about every single movie. Yeah. He does not only in the sixties, but all through the seventies too. He's bare, he's bare chested in both of these movies. Right. And he's not exactly cut either. You know, it's, it's like, what, what are you doing? No, he's got I'm like sure this I'm... Will, Will Ferrell body. Like when Will Ferrell's running <laughs> through the streets and that, is that old school? Is that that movie? That's old school. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not road yeah. trip. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he's got that, he's got that same amount of like tummy hair and, uh, 
<laughs> and yeah, he's got that huge <laughs> torso. <laughs> yeah, he's oh, not cut, it's... but he's cut. But that's but that's the thing. In like the seventies, you know, that was like he was cut for the seventies. That was it's fascinating pretty, to me. Yeah. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, compare him to like the best example is is uh, what's his face and Meet the Parents. Uh, ben Stiller. Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller's cut and Meet the mm-hmm. Parents. You know, and I, Bill Burr's got a great bit about this, but it's like there's no reason for it. Right. And we we watch him and we're like we don't think that he's cut. You know, we, we just think like wow, look at that guy. He's just came from the gym. He's supposed to be an everyman, and he's not. I mean, compared to a guy who's supposed to be a Superman in the '70s, like Charlton Heston, Ben Stiller's the Superman. Well, and it, it, it's just crazy. Well, compared to, to Christopher Reeve, who was supposed to be Superman in the '70s, who had no cuts to right. him, I don't think. Like you, I don't think you ever see no. Christopher Reeve bare chested like in anything. No, but Heston, but right, but Heston seems like just like Kirk Douglas, who I think was a little more cut. Those guys into their fifties were super proud of their bodies. They're like, I need it in my contract, right. and I'm going to be bare chested or completely nude for at least ten minutes out of this movie. I mean, Saturn three, Saturn three is basically like a porn movie for fucking uh, Kirk Douglas, who speaking of, I think, you know, I was watching Black Rain last night, um, which I hadn't Mm -hmm. seen since since a movie theater and and thinking like, oh, this is you know what? This this is a lot better than Rising Sun, which is the. Michael uh, huh? <laughs> Where are you going with any of this? I don't know. But what that Michael Douglas... <laughs> I was sitting I feel... around watching Black Rain last night. <laughs> oh, you mean the classic Japanese movie? No, 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 not that one. The piece of shit No, no, one. no, yeah, the Ridley yeah. Scott movie. Yeah, the Ridley, the Ridley Scott, Scott piece of Michael shit. Douglas movie. Uh, and I was thinking, this is better than Rising Sun. What's Rising Sun? Oh, that other really piece of shit movie that's <laughs> yes. not the piece of shit Right. I think Go in my on. head, I'd always think. Where, where does Year of the Sun. Dragon come into this? No, it doesn't come into this, except uh-huh. that, you know, Mickey Rourke. Oh, because always, always watchable. Bad. Always watchable. Uh, is Michael Cimino, is that? Is Year of the Dragon Michael yeah. Cimino? Wow. Yep. Yeah. You know, movies like buddy cop movies that, that, are, that are set in and around Japan, like that's yeah. where, that's where previously okay thought of directors go to die like it's like that's like the waterloo <laughs> for all these fuckers ridley scott peter hyams is it peter hyams who did right the sun i think, I think so. so that sounds right yeah or was it or maybe Crichton himself directed it is was that michael Crichton? he wrote it or it was based on his novel rising sun 1993 written by michael Crichton, based on his novel Oh, directed by Philip Kaufman. There you go. That's the other. Jesus Christ. That's the other prestige director who went that to is die a precipitous drop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, where were? Oh, so anyway, so Michael Douglas is like a like yeah he he. Uh, he's the last bit of that. He's no, nah, he's Kirk just Douglas he, block. He, but he's not right. But it's like a, you know, it's impressive to me that Michael Douglas had the career that he had, because um, he's not. Easy on the eyes. He's not like a, he doesn't have that chiseled face the way Kirk Douglas does. No, he's got like a kind of he's like a mushier Kirk Douglas. Yeah, he's like and, 
He's like Kirk Douglas. What were those like doll? Those like old women witch dolls where the they were apple faces and they would start yeah. to curl. That's yeah. kind of like what he is. He's the appling curling version of yeah. Kirk Douglas. Or if you left this guy who's Armstrong married to Catherine Zeta Jones, yeah, yeah. This guy <laughs> we're shitting just, on who's doing just fine, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> if you um, if you if you left your Stretch Armstrong doll out in the sun for too long and you kind of. Got melted and gloppy. That's that's Michael Douglas. Not on the face, though, right? Hmm. Because the face was completely different than the body. Well, that's true. Yeah. It was no, like a reverse butter face. Yeah, he's a reverse. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, and he's also got this amazing, like, 80s hair. You know, he's got the he's got the hair that I guess... What, what year was... talking about Michael Douglas? No, forget it. Fuck, fuck Michael Douglas. Uh... So Anthony Zerby uh, is the cult leader of the Manson-esque family. Uh, yes. I'm assuming that's why they're called the family. That's to do exactly Manson. what I was thinking, yeah. Because what is the what is the metaphor in Omega Man? Like, what are, we, what are they trying to get at? I don't think the movie commits. And that's one of the reasons why... I don't know. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't really... It's muddled, you know, it, it, it can't, it wants to have it both ways. And I just don't, I think that's, it's great failing. Yeah. But I also think that, that because it's so muddled and seems to, just like you say, not really commit to any of its sort of concepts, like it's not really any of the things it tries out. Mm-hmm. But I think that you're right. I think that's a huge failing. But I also think that that's what makes it so funky and so sort of rewatchable because it's like such a weird mixture right. of things. It's this it's this Charlton Heston end of the world movie. Why but did it's I know you were going to do that? Why did I know as soon as I put out an argument, you were going to come up with this argument, this very one that made me go, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Well, I just think it's, I'm not. I'm not committing to anything from now right. on. <laughs> no, I, no. You're, I think both things can be true. Like we don't have to commit to a single theory about Omega Man, where it's a muddled mess, which is its greatest failing, but it's also what makes it a really fun drive-in movie and something I can come back to. I just think that the most interesting idea, and especially if you're going to have somebody like Charlton Heston, is like he's. He's actually the bad guy, you know, and, you know, this is like the new order and, and, you know, I mean, that's what kind of, isn't that, that's kind of what makes the scene where he's watching Woodstock, like, shouldn't he be kind of repulsed by Woodstock? And right. if, if they did that, it would just kind of, it's like, God damn it, it. Why do I have to watch this movie again? Oh, it's the only movie that exists. I got to watch a bunch of hippies, you know, if, if, if they went into that new guard I, I think it becomes really interesting but I'm interested to think that you don't accept that as what Heston's trying to convey while he's watching Woodstock because I, I don't know that that isn't how he's viewing Woodstock he keeps he's going to see it because it's what's there but I don't know that he enjoys it and I think when he says they don't make movies like that anymore he's kidding he's being sarcastic yeah. he's being pissy about it I mean, I always remember that scene as being the way you describe it. But when I watched it yesterday, I was like, oh, he actually likes this movie, you know. 
You know, when you read about Heston, like the critical consensus is like he's not, he's wooden and he's stoic and he doesn't have a lot of range and he's sort of like the same stiff in every movie. I don't buy that. I think he's fine as an mm. actor. I think he does display range. I think we'll talk about that more with Soylent Green, where I think he does show a decent amount of vulnerability and his whole relationship, which I don't, the more I see it, the more I'm like, what are they trying to say about him and Edward G. Robinson? Like, are they yeah. lovers? Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. they tell each like other it. they love each other all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they live together in this little apartment. What's going on with them? Um, but, but, you know, he gets a lot of shit for his performance in Touch of Evil, but I think he's doing exactly what Wells wants him to do in Touch of Evil. Like, I think he is this comic foil in that movie, which I think is, as much as it is anything, Touch of Evil is a comedy. I mean, it's very funny. I mean, it's got f- tons of funny shit throughout. Yeah, I, I think he's fine in Touch of Evil. And, you, you know, I mean, you can go on and on about whether or not he should have been cast, but you know that's the way it was and there's nothing you can do to change it it's no there. and i but but i also feel like the, everyone making that movie is completely aware of how goofy that is and how yeah. awkward that it is and they're yeah. playing into it and heston like wells is telling heston you are the idiot you are this stiff you are this guy who has no clue as to what's going on around right. him but you're the <laughs> you know you stumble into solving this whole fucking thing through no fault right. of your own um, and I think Heston plays that terrifically. And I think he must have had a great sense of humor uh, to be able to to commit to that role. Um, but I just love that movie. But but I, I will say that Touch of Evil is a movie that got restored, you know, and they did that thing where they read Wells' notes. I like the I like the unrestored version better. I, I'm, a, I'm an old school Touch of Evil. Yeah, actor. I mean, there's a lot to be said for that. But, you know, that just... By having that opening sequence restored, it more than makes up that more than makes up for the new version's existence. Hmm. Yeah, that's what people say. <laughs> <laughs> I think the I like it with the credits over it and the Mancini yeah, okay. score. All right, all right. Philistine. Um, I like being able to see both versions. I guess of the opening sequence. After that, just give me the old one. So uh, it, would you say that that's the most necess- unnecessary uh, director's cut for you? Uh, I'm sure it isn't, but it's the one that comes to mind. What's the most necessary director's cut for you? Uh, Once Upon a Time in America mm. and um, uh, Heaven's Gate. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That makes a huge difference. I just pulled those out of my ass. I don't know. There's probably much more. What, what, no, what Heaven's Gate is great. I like it a lot. Yeah, but what, 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 what was in your mind before I said those two things? I really like the director's cut of Almost Famous. I think that's probably my favorite. It seems like they made him take out all the, all the good stuff. All the really, really good stuff is... Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that, because I despise that movie, but only have ever seen the theatrical. I only saw it in the theater and was like ran screaming from it after that. Try, so I watch, try I the two it. and a half hour one. It's it's okay. pretty good. Okay, I was just t- I was actually having this conversation with somebody earlier this week. I'm like, yeah. So we were talking about somebody was at talking to me about uh, um, our last lifers episode and all these young guys who are into the '70s rock and 
And I said, I don't know if this is the dividing line, but I think there's a dividing line between people who think like almost famous is a great chronicle of of that stuff. And people who are like, this is the dumbest fucking movie of all time. And I don't don't want Cameron Crowe telling me anything about this time period. Well, I mean, you know, (laughs) it's, it's, it's wide eyed and starry eyed about the seventies, which is, I don't think anybody ever wanted to hear about that. Right. But that's, you know. That, that's that's his that's his truth, my friend. Okay, here's the here's what I here's another probably unpopular opinion. I, I, give me the, the the original theatrical cut of Blade Runner. I don't need any. I don't need anyone to lose the voiceover narration. I like that just fine. I don't yeah. need any fucking ambiguous endings or whatever the fuck. Yeah, I don't hate the voiceover, but. Yeah, it it does. It it's it's not as I'm certain that there's a version of uh, idiocracy that exists without the voiceover, because I think uh, that sounds just as tacked on as Blade Runner's voiceover. I would love to see that version that doesn't explain all the jokes about how you know they talk like idiots and stuff like that. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? There's a scene where. He goes, this person not knowing, you know, how to, he explains what happened. I was like, I, I want to see the version where that guy's not talking. Do Absolutely. you think there is a version like that? Well, I'm sure there is. Um, but your question is, did they make that version and the studio stepped in and said, no, 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 we need a voiceover here? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. Okay. Here's my, here's the problem I have plot wise with Omega Man. The one, the, the thing that I can't get past if I'm mm-hmm. really trying to get serious about this movie and its okay. problems is why is it, why has Heston been trying to find the family's nest for two years and is unable to do so? Why doesn't he just follow them at the end of any of the nights that they're bombing his fucking house? Like they have to get back to this nest before sunlight, so just fucking wait. Till an hour before dawn, because he's then so follow. drunk by the end of the night, <laughs> yeah. he can't yeah. stay awake. Yeah, so he has to have this little kid on the rooftop scene, which looks like something out of um, the room. Um, uh, have to tell him about uh, where these people are living. Right. Uh, here's my favorite line in the movie, issued by, of course, Anthony Zerbe. He says, "The definition of a scientist is a man." who understood nothing until there was nothing left to understand. Which, I mean, I think is profound in a very sort of pop psychology kind uh-huh. of way. Like, oh, yeah, that has multiple meanings. Um, <laughs> I don't understand it one bit, but okay. I'll chew yeah. on it for a while. Yeah. Uh, and then the pretty marks uh, that they talk about are their albino white eyes, I guess. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, that was an image that was just terrifying even them with the sunglasses on i just remember being really scared of these right and that's what reminds me so much of and i guess this no this movie came out a year after beneath planet of the apes but it's so similar to the revelation of those underground people in beneath when they pull off their masks which as a kid that was the most terrifying thing i'd ever seen and i yeah and I first saw Beneath the Planet of the Apes in a movie theater because uh, they would do these. The first movie, the first Apes movie I saw on initial release was Conquest, 
but as soon as Conquest came out, and probably even before then, they would start doing these things where they'd show all the Apes movies. You know, uh-huh. the, the, anytime an Apes movie came out, they'd do like a week of like, go Ape, and you could go to a movie theater and you can watch right. three of them or five of them or whatever. And so, yeah, man. When they pull off their masks and Beneath the Planet of the Apes, and they've got those really, I think, great, I guess, masks on right. rubber masks where they, they're, they're, uh, their veins are... Yeah, and then you forget all about the apes. You're like, I want to know yeah. what's going on with these guys. Exactly, right. That's the thing. The, the, the lamest thing about Beneath the Planet of the Apes is all the time you spend in the ape city. Because you're like, hey, right. we covered that in the last movie and there's nothing going on here. It's <laughs> right. just like endless shots of like General Orko or whatever the fuck his name is, like traipsing through the desert. Like, is it Orko? Or Orso? No, Urko? Urko? Urko. Urkel? Urkel. Urkel. Yeah. He's got the Did he do suspenders that? <laughs> Ursus? Urso? Ursus. It was Ursus. Yes. I had a, I had an Ursus bank. Oh, you did? Yeah. Hang on. I don't, I don't think that's right. Uh, it might not have been Ursus until battle. There was also, you know, um, the TV show. So you think Ursus was the TV show? It's Which possible. I watched too. Oh it's no, solid. it's Ursus. It's Ursus. But here's my favorite thing that I found out this year about General Ursus, who for a long time I thought he was played by Claude Akins, who I think does have a role. But General Ursus and Beneath the Planet of the Apes, do you know who plays him? It's the greatest thing. It blows my mind. No. He's played by this guy, James Gregory, who was in Barney Miller. He was the old, he was like the straight shooting oldest oh. guy I mean not fish not a pagoda but uh, right this dude wait I'll share my oh, screen no that's not him yes James Gregory no way. Was General Ursus yes he's from the Bronx yeah and if you listen to that if you listen if you watch any of Beneath Now and listen to him talk you're like oh my god it's the fucking guy from Barney Miller no way no no Paul Coslow is the name of the guy who I think reminds me of Michael J. Pollard. Heston was born in 1923 and was 47 when this was filmed. Etc. Etc. Boris Segal, Richard Matheson. Good movie, and if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. I mean, it's it's super solid, right? I mean, there's really nothing wrong with this movie. No. It, it, it's got some good action, some good blood, some good violence. I mean, it lags a little in the middle, can we say? But, I mean, it, it lags in the same way that you, you would say that Dawn of the Dead lags. It's just, it gets to this point where it's like, hey, let's, let's live with these guys for a little bit. They're going to be okay, and then they're not okay. Yeah, you know what? That's... What you just said now drives your point home to me even more about its influence on Romero and and Dawn of the yeah. Dead. Because you're absolutely right. It's got those like, God, damn, damn. Look at you, making points. Um, yeah, that's, that's so true. The structure is so Dawn of the Dead. And it's got all this motorcycle stuff. Yeah, it's got the motorcycles and a fountain. And a fountain. And department stores and uh, pillaging of uh, abandoned vehicles. 
and paint blood. There's got to be at least one puffy shirt in uh, Dawn of the Dead. Doesn't Tom Savini wear like a puffy shirt? I don't know. No, I mean, wasn't he a biker? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he's wearing a puffy shirt. But some of them seem like they're dressed up in a sort of piratey kind of way. Nah, maybe not. Maybe they're just like Hell's Angels. Yeah. So, two years later, Heston comes back with uh, this thing called Silent Green, which has this opening montage. Um, that you always seems forget like about, would, don't you? Yeah, and but it seems like it was a real fad back in the early 70s and mid-70s. Like, there's so many movies that do this, either at the beginning or at some point. Like, the thing it reminded me of the most right away was, of course, our favorite, The Parallax View. Dude, this movie... Reminds me so much of the parallax view that like I for years have gotten certain scenes mixed up with the well, parallax view. Not only this opening montage, which feels so much like what he right. has to sit through when he's getting brainwashed, um, but also or not brainwashed, but initiated. But but also there's that whole thing that we've talked about with Invasion of the Body Snatcher 78, where it's like he hitches a ride on this garbage truck at the end and takes right. him to the waste recycling. And that's yep. totally 78 yeah, Body totally. Snatchers. And then the scene where Edward G. Robinson is like watching the movie. And then right. That's supposed to usher him into the next life. That, Another Parallax View. There's there. many times where I know I thought that was a scene from Parallax View. Yeah. Well, that's the best scene in this movie is the Edward G. Robinson deaths. It really is. It really is. And, and and actually, the best thing about the movie is Edward G. Robinson, who is so good in this movie and so different than he is in all of his classic 30s and 40s movies. Uh, and I was like, have, did I miss a whole phase of his career? And the answer is no. Like He was sort of like gray listed and didn't work for a long time. And didn't work for the years leading up to this. Like, this is almost like a one-off. You know, and he died 12 yeah. days after they shot that death scene. It's crazy. His wife could not come to the screen to the set that day because she was just like, there's no way I'll be able to handle this. I mean, I think that's another, you know, one of the perks of being Charlton Heston. He was like, I want my buddy on this movie. And, you know, they're like, but he's deaf. He's like, I don't care. He, he's going to be great in the movie. Right, and they made all these accommodations, and then they still didn't know how it was going to... I have Richard Fleischer. Richard Fleischer directed this movie. And uh, Richard Fleischer is one of these, like, I guess they call them journeyman directors. Right. Who's been around forever and made every kind of movie, and so never gets thought of as, like, an auteur, because he has no real signature, and he didn't write these movies. Um, But I think... I think these guys are great. I think of him and that J. Lee Thompson, who directed Conquest of the Planet of the Apes and a bunch of right. other stuff and a bunch they of Charles Bronson They would both Bronson go on movies. to do Charles Bronson stuff. Right. But J. Lee Thompson got Bronson 10, 15 years down the line, like in the right. sort of canon days, like the, the, the end of Charles Bronson. Um, yeah. But both of those guys, like, okay, I guess they're not auteurs and I guess they don't get talked about in the same way as other directors, but... The thing is, like, I've never been disappointed watching any of their movies. Like, even their worst movies are sort of entertaining. Like, the jazz singer, Richard Fleischer's um, <laughs> Neil Diamond version of jazz singer, uh-huh. is like one of the worst things ever, but totally yeah. watchable. Like, completely entertaining. Yeah. Every time I see his name in the credits, I don't run for the door. I'm like, okay, 
Yeah, I'm in good hands here. This is going to be fine. Yeah, my friends Dino and Mike, who do this I Eat Movies podcast, uh, just coincidentally put out an episode last week where they're talking about a Richard Fleischer movie with George C. Scott from right around this same time called The Last Run. Mm -hmm. I think it's from 70, 71, maybe 72, which I'd never heard of, uh, but it's totally great, totally watchable. A right. lot of fun. George C. Scott is like a uh, retired. Um, I don't think he's a hitman. He's like a <laughs> you know a retired like getaway driver or something. But he's gets My he gets God. hired to. He's living in Spain or Italy or somewhere, and he gets hired to like bust this guy out of jail and get him somewhere to do a job, and it, everything goes wrong. But it's and that movie was crazy because I think. John Borman was going to direct it. Then he bailed before they started shooting. This is this movie, The Last Run. Because George C. Scott was riding high off a of patent, and this is the movie he wanted to make. He wanted to make right. like an old school sort of Humphrey Bogart movie. Like he wanted to be Humphrey Bogart. Right. And So Borman would have been the, the obvious choice. I mean, what, t what year did Point Blank come out? Right around there. 70? Is it 70 or 69? This sounds like Point Blank to me. Yeah, it, it's it's a little it's it's not nearly as cool as Point Blank, or as surreal, but um, it's pretty good. Anyway, it's not like Green. Speaking of you know like you know old <laughs> yeah. school movies, it's kind of like you know it's it's a police mystery type of thing, right? I mean, a police procedural, right? And 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 I think one of the reasons that although I loved it as a kid, like thinking about it and for the last twenty or twenty five years, I've always been like, yeah, like I yeah. think like it's not as cool as Omega Man. It's a little too stiff, and it's like a little too just sort of a procedural. Like they've got all these cool sort of dystopian ideas around the edges of it, and of course that's like the main reveal of the thing is this whole shocking science fiction thing. But that the most of it is this sort of draggy like. Heston knocking on doors and like interviewing people. But I think that that's unfair too. I think, I think my so thoughts too. about it for the last 20 years is wrong because watching yep. it this week, I'm like, no, 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 this is pretty cool. There isn't a lot of, I mean, there probably isn't as much action as Omega man. Uh, but the action is pretty good. Other than the costume design, I think the production design of this movie is, is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, the few visual effects there are good. I read this thing where Gene Siskel was saying, wait till you see these these sort of snow shovels that scoop up people, you'll never stop laughing. I'm like, yeah, I don't think it's funny. Laughing. I think that's pretty goddamn good. <laughs> like, I was impressed. With well, it's stuff. funny, there's only one scene that has that, you know, and, and that's, and if the movie has a, some iconography, it's that, it's that, you know, all people getting shoveled up. But right. it's, it doesn't really spend a lot of time on that. I mean, it spends a lot of time on this idea of, women as furniture yeah and and that is really interesting especially when you think about when it came out and where we are now too uh you know about with roe versus wade you know so i mean that was what was happening and i think putting that into this movie and pushing that um was no coincidence it's it's it, it remains one of the more interesting things about the movie and the most sort of like uncomfortable and like whoa you know and like uh, and and you know both of these movies sort of like race relations are one thing and it seems to deal with those you know as you say either just sort of right out there and also sort of in a 
fairly progressive way, I guess. Yeah. Whereas with the with the um, the treatment of women in both of these things, and women as like sort of sex objects and or reproductive vessels, right? It's a little tougher to figure out how much of this is a st- you know sort of like a statement about this, and how much of this is like this is just how things are. When right. they were making these movies, forget about them trying to like say something about that. That's just, you know, that's how women were portrayed on screen. That's what their roles are in this movie. And that's what the, their roles were in non-science fiction <laughs> movies that were that were being made at the time. That's what their roles are about to be again. I mean, there's a, like a lot of really uncomfortable things when you, you watch this movie. And, you know, from from that to the fact that we have, you know. Soylent, you know, it's just like, it's like, well, the movie was kind of got a lot of stuff right. And the stuff that's right should be really alarming to us. And, and it isn't, it isn't alarming to anybody. You know, it's like, I saw something where somebody was like, oh, well, you know, there was all that panic about overpopulation. And then that led to the China one child system. It's like, okay, fine. But what about the stuff that it does get right? That doesn't worry you, you know? Yeah. Well, and it's and it's and it's part of my problem with Charlton Heston's character arc in this movie is that when it comes to the furniture, he's completely on board. You know, right? He, he's like, he's like, oh, you, you haven't, you don't, I don't see any marks on you. Wow, well, you're lucky. You know, yeah. like most guys just beat the shit out of their furniture, right. and I don't, I don't disturbing. have a problem with that either. When you know, and just, then she has to take her clothes off, and then yeah, he, and it's just so casual. And the th- and the thing when he goes to visit Chuck Connors' apartment, and Chuck Connors has his own furniture there, and she's trying to hide this uh, strawberry covered spoon from him, and all kinds kinds of other goods that they have in the house that he keeps in his pocket <laughs> for yeah, how long before he pulls it out and puts That's it. That's all Edward I'm G. thinking Robinson's about. Then I'm like, he's you're giving Edward G. Robertson a lint covered piece of like <laughs> strawberry jam. Like, what somebody else has probably had in their mouth. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but, but he, so, but on his way out the door, uh, she kind of, I think what's going on is she's offering herself to him. I think so. Yeah. And he's like, if I'd had time, I would have taken it or I would have asked for it. Right. I thought there was going to be something because I, these two movies are so linked in my head. I couldn't figure out which one was the one where he gets down. Right. This is the one where he beats the shit out of the black woman. This is the one where he beats the shit out of the black woman. Right. Just two years later, he's, he's changed his mind about. Yeah. Things have gone the other way. Right. Because Rosalind Cash knocks him out in the Omega Man when she first right. meets him. She goes, your name is Mud. Bang. Right. Smash well, him in the head. Yeah. You know, we, I don't know. He's treats everybody equally, I guess. Well, and that's, I don't know if I ever got to my point about this, is that Heston seems on board with everything going on in society. Or, you know, at least like immune to like feeling how terrible Things. it all is. Right, right. Uh, First, because he doesn't know any better, and second, because I guess he's got you know he th- through his job he's occasionally able to like cash in on some of the rich folks' stuff. So but you don't see a character arc with him, like where he like ever gets to once he he can't take it anymore. I mean, yes, I see that arc, but I don't know that I believe it because um again I'm like okay, so the thing the the bridge too far is that they're making food out of 
people. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy I, to like say that. Like, I, I think what's I the think big deal? The, but it's like, right. <laughs> I, don't I know. think the breaking point is is when um, Saul. No, no, no. I think the breaking point is when his boss tries to shut down the uh, the investigation, and he goes, he's like, "This is my job, and you're not getting in the way of my job. No one is getting in the way of my job, and the the most important thing to him is his job." And then when he realizes maybe that, like, that higher-ups are taking it away or not permitting him to do his job, and he's like, why? And then th- that opens his mind to what the corruption is really, what real corruption is, maybe. I feel maybe. like that's the breaking point. I him. think that's a generous reading of that because in my memory of that scene is like his, his panic is about what about when the even higher-ups discover this? Right. And say who, who the fuck signed off on this bullshit? Right. They're gonna blame him. But yeah. you're right. I mean, I think yes. That it's not that they don't plant seeds along the way for him to sort of take the blinders off. But it's not so much that he's naive for the first half of this movie or has the blinders on. He just seems like he's part of this system. Right. And yes, I guess it's supposed to be the story of a corrupt, cynical cop. Like waking up to the fact that things are way more or fu- so fucked up that he shouldn't be a part of it. Yeah. I just don't know that that cynical. plays out. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. it doesn't. Think, it doesn't. I, I can see that. He seems to be more upset that someone's trying to kill him or someone's following him. Um, right. Yeah, but or, but I do like I do like how skeezy he is. I I, I and I forgot about that, and I like that. That we're seeing Charlton Heston do these very un-Charlton Heston things. Yeah, yes. And I think he's pretty good and believable at that. And I think yeah. he's pretty good and believable at the end, too. But I do think you're right. Like, it's it's a lot of fun seeing him, like, pillage these apartments and, like, you know, grab a grab a pillowcase and shove as much shit into it as he can. And, yeah, take <laughs> advantage of everything. Way back out of bed. Yeah. I'm going to have sex with this furniture. I'm going to yeah. take a shower. Take a shower. Uh, that shower scene is something else. Yeah. <laughs> we, can, we can turn on the air conditioning. Oh, we can make it cold like it used to be. Yeah, not to get into another one of these endless conversations about actors and their toupees, but I, I'm trying to figure out at what point Heston is wearing, starts wearing a piece. And I feel like he is in Solid Green and maybe isn't in Omega Man. Hmm. I think you're probably right because you're obsessed with this, and so I'm going to have to defer to you. You just ruin everything with this toupee stuff. I know. It's never, well, it's never it's, ever it's ever occurred to me ever. I mean, I because you because you because you haven't lost your hair in the way some. I mean, I can me. I can spot some rugs, but you know, you you yeah. ruining my Jimmy Stewart stuff was just. Uncool. I'm sorry. Uncool. I am sorry about What am I supposed to do with Vertigo now? Yeah. Well, the thing about Jimmy Stewart is no, the coolest No wonder part it's of- not voted the number one movie of all time anymore. <laughs> what is now? What took its place? I don't know. The thing about Jimmy Stewart's hair that will always be Jimmy Stewart's hair is like the back of his hair and like the nape of his neck. Yeah. And so that you'll yeah, always have that, a, especially in vertical. Fascinating to me. 
Yeah, that's and that's uh, his, that's not a, that's not a toupee. In fact, <laughs> that's how you know that he's got a nice. That's that's why Jimmy Stewart was a great toupee wearing dude, because guys like Heston, they never have like a nice shaved back of their head. They've got this like piece or something that just sort of like ends, you know. <laughs> I think Chuck Connors looks like he's got that too. So here's my thing. In the, it seems Chuck to me Connors, like Chuck Connors, right? as much as anyone that Tarantino does talk about, he is totally uh, a once upon a time in Hollywood sort of role model for for the uh, DiCaprio character. Like here's a guy who was yeah. a big TV star I, I thought, in the 50s thought about and that 60s. movie watching these two, yeah. And he's so it's. Like he has almost nothing to do in this movie other than just sort of he he's sort of like uh he's like a James Bond villain, you know? Yeah. Like not even a not even like Blowfield or somebody or Doctor No, he's like the henchman. <laughs> you know, he's the right, he's this right. usually he's like the Asian guy who's like just like a silent and knows how to throw darts or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're it's right. It's 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 a waste to Chuck. I mean he was a rifleman. Yeah. Yeah. And and the other dude who is like the the sort of the guy who's sort of pulling the strings behind the guy who hires the assassin in the beginning and then goes talk to the police guy. He I got to tell you who that actor is. I don't know, but that is weird. Because I wasn't paying attention at first. and I thought it was Charlton Heston. Right. No, it's well, but he's yeah, he's he's wearing more of a Chairman Mao outfit than Heston does. <laughs> That's how you tell them apart. His name was Roy Jensen, and he was in Chinatown. As who? He is like the big lug cop that's constantly like mixing it up with uh, Jack Nicholson. A lot of TV type of actors in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, now one of these movies was written by this couple that went on to do nothing but soap operas. I can't remember if that's Omega Man or this one. Did you know Cloud Atlas is also depicting a future society where workers are fed with human remains? I never made it through all of Cloud Atlas, so I didn't. I missed that segment. Well, you can see it now. It's in the theaters. It's called uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once. <laughs> no, that's. I mean, I'm not. I don't. I'm not defending that movie, but it's okay. So then that brings us to the end of this movie. Like one, of, like <laughs> if the '70s knew what it was doing, and it was the, their endings, right? I mean, this is. Is this a better ending than, than uh, Planet of the Apes? No, but it's pretty good. Yeah. It's hard for it's hard to it's hard to watch this movie and try to think about what it was like watching this movie without knowing that that's where this is all leading. I mean, this this is a movie that right. has become I don't know, like a meme or it's like it's all it's like that's the movie where you know, soiling green is people. It's like that's the tagline. Right. But, but right. everybody knows how this ends, but nobody's actually seen it. Right. But it wasn't the well, right. Exactly. But I think originally that wasn't the tagline and, and that it's supposed to be a surprise ending. And in fact, the Soylent Green plot line is not part of the book that it's based on. So this was 
no. totally made up for the movie. Um, and I'm trying to remember, I think as a kid, I thought, wow, this is a shock. Although I think I was, I think, again, for me as a kid, these movies, their endings were devastating, not because of a big twist, but because they weren't really happy endings. And that Charlton right. Heston's either dead or dying in, yeah. in most of these movies. Yeah, um, it's way to go. And so the panic that I felt at the end of this movie wasn't about the fact that, and I don't know why, I just can't get behind being all that riled up about suddenly <laughs> being, being people. I mean, yes, I understand if they're breeding people to become food, which I feel like is absolutely the next thing that's going to happen in this country. Like now right. that abortions are illegal, uh, you know, the babies are just going to be brought up on these food farms that you know, turned into um but this just got dark <laughs> yeah but i think that 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 the that the that the devastation of the ending was that wait a minute what's going on they don't they don't believe him he sounds crazy right he's about to die like they're not paying attention to him or brock peters is in on this and that's a question i have that's a little bit ambiguous about what Brock Peters' role in this in this conspiracy plot is. I mean, he's been talked to by Sunglasses McGee from Chinatown. Right. I feel like he's, he's pretty above board. So you, you what know. do you think happens after the after the last scene in this movie? Uh yeah, I think they kill him in in the hospital. But what do you think Brock Peters does with the information? Uh probably nothing. I don't think he does anything with it. It was like, yeah, he's just, he'd, he'd gone off the reservation, you know. He's not going to do anything. Like, he's just going to tell him, just, I mean, because those people that are working in the, in the factory, they know that, you know, Sterling Green is people, right? So, I mean, some people do know this secret, and they are able to, to hang on to it. Right. Right. I also question I mean, as after to, After Charlton like, Heston gets done with him, there's two less people that know. Right. But I mean, it doesn't seem like this high security waste disposal facility is all that high security. I mean, all Heston does is jump on top of a garbage truck and then he's in there. Right. But again, some good stunts. Right. At the end of that movie. Uh, You know, he's knocking people off the catwalks and they're landing on. No, I know. Not Charlton Heston, but I'm just saying pretty good. Well, where were they hiding all the pods is what I want to know. Yeah. Great question. Profound question. You know, where where was Donald here. Sutherland when you needed him? Profundities. Oh, Dick Van Patten of Westworld fame puts in an appearance. Oh, in nice. Yep. Yep. Totally does. It's heartbreaking to see uh, Joseph Cotton. Yeah, Joseph Cotton. I guess do you, you, you rarely have ever seen Joseph Cotton in color. Maybe that's why he looks different. I mean, certainly he's very old, but he looks like I had to when I when I first rewatched this, I was like, wait a minute. I just typed it in to make sure that that was Joseph Cotton. I was like, I think this is Joseph Cotton. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, he was in something else around that time. And, it, and it's equally um, shocking to see. I can't remember what it was. Wow, he worked a lot, dude. His last movie was in 1981. Oh, he's in Heaven's Gate. That's 
That's what is like really crazy when you see him in Heaven's Gate. What does he do in Heaven's Gate? In Heaven's Gate, he plays the Reverend Doctor. Oh, wow. Uh, he's in Airport 77, one of your favorites. He's in uh, Barren Blood. Wow. The Abominable Dr. Fibes. That's a little... He was in Torah, Torah, Torah. Mm. Which probably led to this. So yeah, he, he worked a lot. Hush, hush, sweets. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Voices carry. <laughs> when you, that's so funny because when you said Torah, 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 I thought of that. What's that Rolling Stones song? I think it's maybe off of... Um... There's a Van Halen song, Torah, Torah, Torah. Yeah, but there's some... There's some stone song where it's like blah 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 out with the boys. I think it's maybe off of Emotional Rescue. And they don't say Torah Torah Torah, mm. but they repeat a word three times. It always makes me think of Torah Torah Torah. Oh, no, no, no. It's a good record though. Mm, yeah, you know that's my Stones jam. Well, it's not. It's not a bad Stones jam. All right. Now wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're almost done. Uh, but, uh, okay, here, you know, people, I hear people talk a lot about what was the best year ever for movies. And I don't have the answer to that, but I hear people talk about like 83 or 85. 2007. Oh, do you hear that about 2007 or is that a joke? No, I mean, that was the year that, uh, what was, There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men and uh, Jesse James. Yeah. Good year. Okay. Now, I'm not making a claim for any particular year. I don't know that that's even possible. But I just happened when I was researching Omega Man from '71, just bumped into a list of just American films that were released in 1971. Okay. And I'm just going to cherry pick this endless list. And how you could call any of those other years that we just mentioned the best year for movies, as opposed to '71, is beyond me. Uh, the Anderson Tapes, The Andromeda Strain, Woody Allen's Bananas, uh, Don Siegel's The Beguiled, Billy Jack. This is all. This is, by the way, in alphabetical order. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm waiting carnal, for the Stone Cold Classics. Carnal Knowledge, Clockwork Orange, yeah. Ooh. Dirty Harry, uh, Duel. Nice. Escape from Planet of the Apes. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof. The French Connection. Mm-hmm. Harold and Maude. That wasn't 72? French Connection? Nope. Uh-huh. Hired Hand. Hospital. It couldn't have been because Godfather was 72. Clute. The Hospital. I still haven't seen The Hospital. God, Clute is so good. Clute is Last so, so Picture good. Show. Yep. The Richard Fleischer movie I just mentioned, The Last Run. Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Little Murders, which is an amazing movie. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which remind me to talk to you about that in a second. Yeah. Uh, Minnie and Moskowitz. Doc. Doc. Right, that's what I want to talk to you about. Uh, Plaza Sweet. Play Misty for Me is 71. Panic in Needle Park. I mean, all I'm just saying is like... I mean, there's like 30 fucking movies that came out in 71 that were like, I can't imagine the world without that movie. 
Yeah. I don't think you can do that for 2007 or even 85. Maybe. Maybe you could. 2007 is pretty good. I mean, when you when you look at it, it's pretty unbelievable. You're like, what the hell? Right. So I watched, uh, I rewatched Doc because you were yeah. raving about it. Didn't and like it? No, I liked it a lot. It's good. But the most amazing thing to me about Doc is Stacy Keach and Harris Eulin in 1971 or 70? Was it 70? 71? Yeah. 71. They, you know, you watch them in 2018 and you're like, this is 50 years later. These guys look almost the same. Yeah. <laughs> like they, it's not that they, I mean, I don't know how old they were in Doc, but they already seem like they're in their 40s or 50s. If you see pictures of them from when they were three and they look exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, what's amazing to me is at the end of Doc, they show a picture of the real Doc Holliday. And it oh, that looks is just the like real Stacey Doc Holliday? I think so. That's not Stacy Keach. First, I didn't think it was. And then the more, when it pulled back a little more, I was like, oh, no, wait, that is okay. Stacey well, Keach. I was, you know, I was completely fooled. I mean, you're right. I've had the same thought. But eventually, I convinced myself, no, that's Stacy Keach. Is this the one? Mm, it looks too handsome. Maybe... Maybe that's what they did. Maybe they made Keach look as much like that as possible. Yeah, that's got to be at least the picture that they're basing it on. Right. Yeah, I guess that could be Kilmer. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing movie. Great ending. Speaking of great endings. You want to see what else was playing? Let's see what else was playing. 1973 or 1971? We'll do both. Here's first start. 1971, the day that... um, Whatchamacallit was released. Omega uh, Omega, Omega Man. Man. Movies that have stood the test of time and movies that I've never heard of. The Red Tent. Never heard of it. Sean Connery. Peter Finch. Claudia Cardinale. Yep. That's an Italian movie, I think. I the true story of one of the most incredible events of the century. I don't know what that event was. It's directed know. by someone named Mario. Hey. No, it's directed by somebody who sounds oh. like Russian. But it definitely oh. seems like an Italian production. It's G. Next. Well, everything was rated G back in those days. Was it? Sure. Yeah, I think Clute was rated G. I don't know. Clute, no Clute was rated R. That's a hard R. Fortune in Men's Chicago. Eyes, What Goes On in Prison is a Crime. Never heard of it. A graphic, detailed, brutal portrait of prison life. Yeah. Dude, this looks like it's right up our alley. I know. Or is it like, is it prison porn? Uh, it was rated R, so I don't think it was porn. But okay. uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, movie I love. The Devils, the Ooh. X-rated The Devils, Ken Russell, movie that's hard to see, has been hard it, to see. It's uh, it's on Shudder. Oh, is it? Yeah. I guess not that hard to see. Uh, the Go-Between. Don, oh, directed by uh, Joseph Losey. Oh, I got to go check uh, that out. It's a pinter. Did, did they have that during the, the pinter thing that they were having on uh, Criterion? Was that in there? I don't know. I, don't, I missed it if that, if that happened. Uh, here's a movie called The Touch. Ingmar Bergman's first English language motion picture. Oh, well, I've heard it's the best movie about love that Ingmar Bergman has ever made. 
starring Elliot Gould and B.B. Anderson and Max von Sydow. Come on, how have you not seen this? I don't know. Visconti, who I was mentioning before, Death in Venice. I like this Wonka proclamation, adulthood abolished. I don't think I've ever seen that. No, everyone a kid at heart in Wonkaville. And uh, children and adults for a buck a piece, you could go see Willy, Willy Wonka. Good gimmick. Johnny Got His Gun. Nice. A great movie gets great reviews, according to the ad. Jacqueline Suzanne's The Love Machine. Adult Diane books. Cannon. Yeah. John Philip Law. What's got those best special effects since 2001? The Andromeda Strain. Love it. Rated G. Great movie. Love that movie. Blue Water, White Death. Wow. Somebody was uh, presaging Jaws. I know. I wonder, is that a documentary? I think it's a documentary. Looks like it. Yeah. Also a documentary, Love Story with Ally McGraw and Ryan O'Neill. Rated GP. I like the GP rating. What's that mean? It's a great question. All ages admitted, but parental guidance is, what does it say? Supported? <laughs> Disappeared? Support, I think so. <laughs> guidance of parent. I don't know why it was GP. I used to see that when I was a kid. I, I thought it was like outside of New York they would say GP, but I guess it was inside of New York too. Uh, Lawman? I don't know that movie. Mm-mm. It's GP. Peter Rabbit and the Tales of Beatrix Potter as performed by the Royal Ballet. That's more expensive than Willy Wonka. That's a buck twenty-five. That's a painful movie. That's like just like ballet dancers in these elaborate head-to-toe costumes doing Peter Rabbit shit. No, never, never even heard of it. I like this Woody Allen bananas ad with like the Mad Magazine artwork. Or bananas. What did I say? You said Mad Magazine. Well, I said the Mad Magazine artwork for Woody Or bananas. bananas. Yeah. Remember the oh, magazine or bananas, bananas? the magazine. Yes, yeah. yes. I get you now. Okay. Uh, I don't know these movies. No, I know Vanishing Point, but what is it, The Seven Minutes? It's an obscene bestseller. Four million readers decided for themselves, now you can do the same. I, I don't know. I mean, that it looks, looks like Peter O'Toole in that movie. Looks like Peter's... Got something. Yeah, it looks like Peter's making out with another guy. No, or no oh, that's not oh, a guy. Oh, no, that's oh, a woman. I, I don't know. Who the fuck knows? Uh, oh, Lawman stars Burt Lancaster, Robert Ryan, and Lee J. Cobb. So like, maybe that's a Western? Could be good. Speaking of Westerns. There we go. McCabe and Mrs. Miller. The most exciting force now working in movies. Irresistible. Completely fresh. Completely overshadowed Doc. I don't see Doc in here. No. What's Deep End? Uh, Jane Asher? Yeah, Jane Asher and Diana Doors. Okay, so here we go. Shaft is playing. So the black exploitation thing was happening. Hmm. Yeah, but when I looked up... When did Sweet, Sweet, Sweetback's Badass Song come out? Okay. Uh, 
It was coined in August of 72. Mm. The term, anyway. And Sweet Sweetback came out in 72? Uh, Sweet Sweetback and Shaft both released in 71. Aye. So it was in full swing. Not in full swing, but it, in nascent well, swing? Yeah. I mean, it was coming out at the same time. So it's what I, all I'm saying is Omega Man isn't cashing in on black exploitation. Or is it, Omega Man isn't like, oh, we just saw Sweet Sweetback and Shaft, and so we're going to, and you know, we just saw Cleopatra Jones, and now we're going to do our own thing. Right. But I just, I can't believe that, you know, it's all, all just a coincidence. Yeah. Adrift, never heard of it. Fantasia, heard of it. Summer of 42. Uh, Todd Browning's Freaks. Is Summer of 42 what's playing on the TV in The Shining? Uh, Yes, I think that is correct. Wow. Well, what's Double amazing to me, of, though. It's a gift and of a kind. W.C. Fields. It's a Gift is maybe my second favorite comedy. It's pretty good. Look at this. Freaks was playing with Unshan Andalou. They knew what it was even back then, huh? Yeah. And Marat Saad was playing with The Killing. I don't know what Marat Saad is. Oh, that's great. Peter Brooks inside a madhouse. Oh, Performance. It's not the documentary, is it? Performance? Murat no. Saad? No. Yeah. No, no, no. That's, uh, I know what you're thinking of. Hey, look. The band in concert. In, nice. The New, New Jersey Street movie. Fairgrounds. Where's the Omega Men? God, fantastics. Yeah, that's a good question. Where the fuck is the Omega Man? I saw it. Oh, here it is. And look at look at how Whoa. young Heston looks in this ad. It's like a Charlton Heston from like 30 years previous. He looks like um, Andy Griffith in this <laughs> He looks like... It doesn't look like him at all. No. And I like this little cartoon <laughs> down at the bottom. Somebody's on a motorcycle. There's like an overturned. Yeah. I don't know what. Oh, and here's the here's the family. Look right. like the clan. Well, look, look what's really disturbing if you you go up. You see behind him. Oh yeah. That's pretty scary. Yeah. I mean, these are kids' movies. You know. I mean, that's what that's what. And I consider myself very lucky to have grown up with movies like this. Yeah. GP. Parental guidance. It's suggested. It's not necessary. No. Not necessary. No. All right. So then 73, the day that uh, Soiling Green came out. Here's a Soiling, here's the Soiling Green ad made famous by Local H this year. Uh-huh. <laughs> People are still the same. But uh, by the way, Charlton Heston's face on the Sony Green ad looks as like photoshopped in as your face does in the local H thing. Mine looks more real. It does actually. Yeah. 
Oh, I see why the people were fixated on this scoop because it's on the poster. Yeah, no, it, it, it was. It's a big selling point. Yeah. But the, again, the, those those helmets that they're wearing, football helmets. Yeah, yeah. The hell is going on? There's a That's what I'm saying. Fo- yeah. Football. There was football was uh, was outlawed in the future, and there's a surplus of well. Football and it helmets. also it also begs the question that I forgot to ask earlier. Charlton Heston in this scene is getting shot at by the assassins. <laughs> Right. Why does he take his helmet off as gun as bullets are whizzing? I have no idea. I have no idea. But I just think about all the collateral damage. No, oh, there's tons. It's so like, many innocent bystanders get yeah. killed in this movie throughout. Like it's like the, you guys give a shit that these people are being made into food. Doesn't exactly. look like it. I mean the 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 clearest, and I think it's a great sort of visual representation of how overpopulated. It is that every time somebody shoots a gun, somebody's getting shot. There's no room for the bullet to whiz past right. anyone. <laughs> uh, which is like why that's a crazy. The craziest place to try to kill Heston is in the middle of this fucking riot. Yeah. Um, here's a movie I used to say, "Oh, I'm going to watch this." It was you know another movie on TV at my grandparents' house at night. I'd be like, "Oh, Jack Lemmon, Save the Tiger." Never could make it. Never past the first. John G. Avildsen, huh? Yeah. I have no idea what this movie's about. I it's feel like the he's, first important film of 1970. I feel like he's a dry cleaner or something. What? What, what? Why is this movie called Save the Tiger? What happens in this movie? I need to know. We need to watch this movie. Oh, man. Okay, what else we got? 73. So far. Cabaret. Streisand up the sandbox. Never, never heard of it. So there's What's Up, Doc, which is fantastic, Streisand. There's uh-huh. For Pete's Sake, which I used to watch for whatever reason, which is a weird movie where Michael she's married Sarazin. to Michael Sarazen and yeah. she starts turning tricks to <laughs> to make money for for their marriage. Up the Sandbox, I don't know what it's about. That's the that's the one of those three that I like. Don't think I've ever seen. Well, it's rated R. That sounds good right off the bat. Yeah. And what else we got? Uh, Cabaret, uh, world's greatest athlete. And uh, Dumbo. Ganja and Hess. Ganja and Hess. Wattstacks. Poseidon Adventure. There you go. Devil and Miss Jones. What else? A movie I never heard of, The Nelson Affair, with Glenda Jackson and Peter Finch. Wow. That looks Uh, painful. I mean, (laughs) with with a title like that... People must have been killing themselves to get in the theater. Yeah. They were climbing the over affair? each other. Yeah. They were climbing over each other Soylent Green style. Right. They were sleeping on the stairs of the theater. Directed by James Selen Jones. Produced by Hal B. Wallace. No, well. Isn't he the guy who did, um, who is yep. Hal B. Wallace? King Kong? <laughs> now, I like this movie. This, uh, I love this. Yeah, I love Tom Sawyer. With uh, the little, redhead kid? Johnny Whitaker. Yeah, Johnny Whitaker. Sure, that was a great one. If I uh, produced by Arthur P. Jacobs of Planet of the Apes fame. Oh wow! Visconti's boy, there's always a Visconti movie playing when you least <laughs> expect it. Uh huh. Total nudity at the burlesque. There's nothing happening. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Vault of Horror. What's this one? You never seen Vault of Horror? No. Isn't it one of those? Uh, it's one of those omnibus a, things, I'm sure. Yes, 
Right. Based on stories by Al Feldstein and Bill Gaines. Rated R. Weren't those the Mad Magazine dudes? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was N- Rudolf Gaines. Nureyev and I Am a Dancer. That's got to be amazing. Class of 44. Is that the summer? Is that the sequel to Summer of 42? I think it is. It must be. Yep. Remember, Remember Summer of 42? Yeah. Remember how good you felt when you walked out? Well, we're about to bring you down. <laughs> Remember how good when you felt when you walked out? <laughs> this movie is great. You're going to feel great when you walk out of it. Yeah. Oh, Chow there's a review Manhattan. of Chow Manhattan. Nice. Uh, what else we got here? Something's, something good Suspense. is coming Suspense. State of Siege. No. Nope. Never seen it. Nothing. This is... Maggie Smith and Timothy Bottoms in Love and Pain. Maybe you got something here with the... Oh 71. Charlotte's yeah. Web used to play in a movie theater? Sure. That's, what do you think it played? I, I thought it was a TV uh, movie? Yeah. Oh, no, no. No way. No way. I saw it at a drive-in. No way. Yeah. Hell oh, my yeah. God. The headless, is that the Disney one? The Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow? Where are you seeing that? Oh, yeah. Extra added yes. attraction. I Based on that. the legend by Washington Irving. Good to know. Last Tango in Paris. Mm-hmm. I don't know what this love and... Oh, it's called Love and Pain and the Whole Damn Thing. Directed by Alan J. Pakula. Holy what? shit. What is this movie? Maggie Smith and Timothy Bottoms. Get on it. Yeah. That's a must see. Slither. With James Caan, Peter Boyle, Sally Kellerman, and Louise Lasser. It's about a snake. To find that out. Hurry to see such a gorgeous kid like me. This is the shittiest week ever. It's a Francois Truffaut film. No, boy, get oh out of here. Where? Such a gorgeous kid like me. I mean, I don't know what the French title is. Ooh. But we got music by Georges Delarue. Wee oui, wee. Oui. One of my favorites. Lost Horizon. Music Didn't by Burt Bacharach. Heartbreak Kid playing. Oh, wait. Sorry, I'm having an awkward time trying to... Scarecrow. Oh, here's Heartbreak Kid. Charlie One-Eye. Behind oh, the Green Door. Old Charlie One-Eye. Godspell. Behind the Green Door. Now we're getting to it. Somebody told the black man he wasn't a slave anymore. Somebody told the red man this land was his. Somebody lied. Somebody's going to pay. Wow. Oh, I'd see that. Yeah. I'm down for that. Sounder. Yeah, and all kinds of movies. Godspell. There's something. Behind the Green Door, the best movie ever made. Yeah. Gene Hackman is superb. In Scarecrow? Yeah. Two yeoman performances by charismatic actors Gene Hackman and Al Pacino. What's the guy who plays the really scary guy in Scarecrow in prison? Uh, good question. That guy fucking freaks me out. Look at this double feature, though. Walter Matthau and Carol Burnett in Pete and Tilly, all about love and marriage, playing with silent running. <laughs> That's a weird double feature. Yeah, it's like an odd couple. Yeah, but look at look at a topless Walter Matthau, bare chested almost. Jeez, 
Honeymoon's over. It's time to get married. <laughs> Wait, there's a review of Marcel Marcel on stage. Oh, no. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 what were people thinking? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Brother, son, sister, moon from Franco Zeffirelli. Ooh. I mean, I've never heard of it, but I mean, isn't this just Romeo and Juliet all over again? You're riding high. High Plains Drifter. Not a bad There you movie. go. Scorpio. Good old Scorpio. Scorpio. I tried to watch that last year. I didn't make it that far. Oh, well. Book of Numbers and Money, Money, Money. I don't know either one of these. Oh, Claude Lelouch. Okay. Well, he made a million movies, so that's not my fault. Uh, what is this Book of Numbers? I don't know. Blue Boy and Company. I don't know what this is. Well, it's a it looks, French movie? It no. looks like it could be. It's co-starring Frida Payne and Philip Thomas. I don't know any of these people. Yeah, I don't either. But it looks like it could be worth seeing. Sure. El Topo with Bedazzled. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. That's quite a double bill. Baroness Nina, what is that? Where are you seeing that? El Topo and Bedazzled? Oh, oh, yeah. Or Roma and Satyricon at the New Yorker. Tonight at Midnight Psycho, Wednesday, Lady Sings the Blues and Three Penny Opera. It was a glorious time. Incroyable. Well, it's been a wonderful uh, return to form for us. We covered two movies in less Quite a double time, feature. less running time, less running time than the combined total of the two okay. movies. Okay, right. Eight. I guess that's not yeah. so bad. We can always tell you something. Plus, we'll cut it. We'll cut it down. <laughs> William, I don't know. We'll see how it goes.